don't plug that in just yet. Don't, yeah, okay. Praise God. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. The title of today's message is Soli Deo Gloria. You'll see that on the screen in just a few minutes. Let me pray and we'll get into the lesson for today. Maybe this might be a, a, a smidget too loud. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your loving kindness and for the opportunity to come together this morning to worship, praise, and lift up your holy name. Lord, we thank you that you are also giving us the grace and enjoying this process, enjoying this gift with our brothers and sisters who are sitting around us. Lord, I decrease so that you may increase. I become less so that you can become more. I pray that you move me, move me out of the way, Lord. You alone deserve all of the praise and all of the glory. You alone are worthy of all of the praise and all of the glory. And you alone, for you alone, we live so that you may receive all of the praise and all of the glory. Keep me far from error. Keep your people from believing a lie. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'd like to say good morning to you. And I'd like to again thank you for, for joining us this morning for what will be a, a summer-long study through what is known as the doctrines of grace. We will be studying the doctrines of grace for the rest of this summer. This will be one of those seasons in this church in which we will take a break from our exposition of a book, like we did with the book of Galatians. And instead of doing the exposition of a book, we will walk through specific subjects or topics together. Now, I know that I've been hard on, on ministers who do nothing but topical teaching, but that's usually because their topics are man-centered and not God-centered. But what we are going to teach and discuss this summer are not just random topics. We, what we are going to do for the next two months is we are going to present in a kind of topical style presentation the doctrines of grace. And each of these doctrines are perfectly knitted together to form what we call Reformed Theology. These doctrines have other names. Go ahead and plug that in now, hon. And what I'm going to do for you, because I want you to walk out of this, these, these two months, and get this. I want you to see it for yourself. A lot of times I can say things and it will go right past you. But I want you to see it there as you are hearing it here. Reformed theology is also known as covenant theology, Calvinism, or the tulip. All of these are synonyms, and they are perfectly appropriate to use for the theology that we teach here at RBC. You may be wondering, or have been wondering for some time, just for some time, what is Reformed theology? We've been saying it for a long time. We've been saying this church is Reformed for a long time. You may have been even hesitant to call yourself Reformed. Or when people ask you what kind of church to go, you go to, you also may be hesitant to say, I go to a Reformed church because you don't know how to explain 
what reformed means. So what I'd like to do for the next two months is break down for you the heart of reformed theology, which finds its distinction in the doctrines of grace. Just as a side note, you have been learning reformed theology for the past year and a half. Everything that we've been teaching up until now and and for the rest of my existence has been reformed theology. Everything that we taught on Wednesdays, the essentials, is reformed theology. What we're going to do is give you some distinctions, though, that are that are extremely distinct, not extremely distinct, but most distinct from all other theologies. Where does Reformed theology begin? Reformed theology begins where the Bible begins. Reformed theology also begins where God begins, with God. Reformed theology begins with God. Reformed theology begins where the Bible begins, with God. God also begins with himself. Interesting note, Reformed theology and Christianity does not begin with you. It begins with God. All things begin with God. All things end with God. And above all, God is glorious. And above all, God is worthy of praise. And above all, God is worthy of honor. And above all, in all of God's creation, He is worthy to be honored and glorified by His creation. All glory and honor belongs to God and to God alone. This is where the Bible begins, and this is where the doctrines of grace, reform theology, and this church begin. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this. What is the chief end of man? Answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. There are a lot of things that we could live our lives for. But the chief end, the main purpose for why you exist today is so that you can glorify God. And in glorifying God, enjoy God forever. Meaning... That your reason, that you, the reason why you exist today is so that your lives can be lived in such a way to glorify God. And to enjoy freely what he has given freely to his own. The great Puritan Jonathan Edwards wrote in his book, Religious Affections. God's purpose for my life was that I have a passion for God's glory. And that I have a passion for my joy in that glory. And that these two passions are one passion. John Piper translated this wonderful thought by saying, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. Creation, life, pleasure, joy, love, excitement, and a host of other human experiences are all wrapped up and completely found in God for His glory. This is the foundation of Soli Deo Gloria. We begin with this doctrine, all glory is to God alone. And when we are done at the end of the summer, we will end with this doctrine again. All glory is to God alone. And we will see why we end with that when we get there. But this is fitting. Is God not the Alpha and Omega? Is God not the beginning and the end? So we should begin with God and it is appropriate to end with God. Now, what distinguishes Reformed faith or Reformed theology from all others is this. It strives to understand all things in such a way that God alone receives the glory. I will say that again. The distinction between Reformed theology and all other theologies is this. That we strive to understand 
all things in such a way that only God gets the glory. Reformed theology is the most God-centered theology. Reformed theology is the most biblically consistent theology. Why? Because it is consistent about who God is in His glorious, holy, sovereign position over all things. And it is consistent with man and the teachings about man and man's position in light of the holy, glorious God of the universe. In John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, we find that Calvin points out that in order for us to understand who God is, we must understand something about who man is. And the reverse is true. We are to understand, if we are to understand who man is, then we must first understand who God is. Our theology is built on the foundation of pursuing God's glory for the simple reason that the God of Reformed theology is consumed with the pursuit of his own glory as well. God is consumed with pursuing his own glory. So we are consumed with the thing that God is consumed with, his glory. So that's where we begin. And that's where we are distinguished from all other theologies. All history, listen, is being shaped for the glory of God. You've got to get this. All of the, all of the events that have transpired, and all of the, the events that are transpiring, and all of the events that will transpire, are all for the glory of God. All of history is telling His story. And history is leading to the day and the moment when every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. This is called teleology or teleology, depending on what country you're from. It is the study of purposes and ends. Why did God create the universe? In the beginning, God created the universe, the heavens and the earth. Why? God did not create the universe because he was lonely. God did not create the universe because he wanted or needed you because he had no one else to play with. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit enjoyed unity and an intimacy that was so intense that three, these three persons made one substance. That's how close they were in, in unity. That's how close they were in fellowship with one another. That they, be, that they are one. So he is not in need of anything. He lacks nothing. They lacked nothing. There was no want before the beginning. God does not act out of, of lack. God acts out of fullness. He does not act out of his lack or his need. God acts out of his fullness. The medieval theologians called this the full bucket problem. Meaning that God's eternal joy is as complete and completely full without anybody needing to put anything in it. So then, why did God create us? Answer, for His glory. All creation exists to show forth the indescribable glory of God. Psalms 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveal knowledge. There is no speech or no language where the voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. All creation does what? It displays the glory of God. Now, 
let me just take a side note and then get back to what I'm saying. If you are not passionate for what I'm speaking about, then you have no idea where we, where, where, where we are or what we are and who you are. Because this is all about the glory of God. God has set up the earth's axis in such a way that if we were one degree in either direction, fire or ice would be upon us. Think about that. The gravitational balance of the galaxy is set with perfect precision so that we are not flying from one end of the universe to the other. The oxygen levels that we breathe are perfectly constructed so that the creatures and human beings who live on this privileged planet can live. All creation is wrapped up in the glory of God. All creation is just one grand stage for God to display His glory. But creation is not the end of the story of God. And it is surely not the end of the story of His glory. The name of this story is called History. Or His Story. Or Romans, Galatians, Rome, or Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. At that moment... God began to tell a story. At the moment that God says, let there be light, God begins to tell and write a story. It was a story that began with the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the deep. It was a story that was predetermined. It was a story that was predestined. It was a story that God already knew the beginning and the end to. But it began there. Why? For his glory. And all things thereafter for his glory. Listen, the waters separating from the heavens would be declaring his glory. Dry ground glorified God when it sprang up from the earth. And the earth and every seed began to glorify God when it broke forth and produced fruit and vegetation. They are all in the process of glorifying God. The oak trees, they, they reached up to the heavens. The pine trees, they reached up to the heavens to worship and glorify God, lifting their branches and praising the one who is glorious. The day, sun, and the light of night, the moon, and the stars begin to sparkle and glisten and shine for the glory of God. The creatures that lived on the ground and those who soared through the air and those who swam in the ocean do so for the glory of God. Then God said in Genesis 1.26, Now let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, and in his image God created him, male and female, and he created them. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the ground. Why did God create man to be a part of this story? God created us, you and I, as an expression of his glory. And it is by grace that we live. 
We are created for the glory of God. God is the master artist who went to work over a period of six days and created this masterpiece for his own good pleasure. And his handiwork, you and I are given the joy to enjoy him forever. God blessed them. The pure grace of God. Man had done nothing at this point to be blessed. It is simply because God is good that we are blessed. And it is because of His grace that He says, I give you anything. From the very beginning, there was nothing that we could do to earn grace. It was simply graciously given. We were created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. God did not create you so that you could glorify yourself. God did not create you so that you could glorify yourself. Modern pulpits are following the fleshly desires of the world that preach it is all about you. Modern pulpits today are preaching how you can feel better about yourself, even feel better about your sin, so that they could say, so that you could believe it's not your fault. We are living in a generation that is all about themselves. And I have never seen so many people taking pictures of themselves. Did you forget what you look like? This is the, the selfie generation. And the selfie generation is all about self. You've got to see where Satan is, 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 is slyly, so slickly taking this generation into making it about themselves. Make yourself happy. I've seen uh, pictures on walls that say, uh, feel better, do better. All these things that are, are pointed to yourself. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, says this. You will never glory. You will never know the glory. Oh, you will never glory in God. Till first of all, God has killed your glorying in yourself. Is that up there? Good. You will never glory in God. Till first of all, God has killed your glorying in yourself. God is the star of this show, not me and not you. God's story is being displayed not just in creation, but in all of history. And you are a part of that story to display his glory. You are created for people to see you and for you to point to God. For his glory, not your own. And the Bible has shown this time and time again. I want to give you a few examples. I'm going to run through them very fast, as I usually do. But I want you to get a picture of what God is doing in this process. I'm not even going to go through all of them, and they're all throughout Scripture. The Lord says to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And whoever blesses you will be a blessing. I will curse those I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Here it is. And all peoples in the earth will be blessed through you. God has given this man grace of saying, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to pour out my, my blessings on you. And you are going to make my name known throughout the entire world. And all people on the world are going to know that God is great because of what I'm going to do in you. He says to his son, Isaac, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations and earth on the earth will be blessed through you. 
Another example of grace being given for nothing. We go to Genesis 28. It says, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples will be blessed through you and your offspring. And Isaac didn't even have a wife. Imagine the the great things that God is going to do for nothing that Isaac has done and saying in the process, I am going to get the glory. Nothing. All we can do is point this back to God. All the nations will know that you are blessed and you will point back to the one who has given you those blessings, God. We could go on. I mean, I can't. I don't have enough time. I could tell you the whole story of Joseph. But every single moment in Joseph's life was leading to the very moment when he was standing in front of his brothers who were falling on their face saying, I know you're going to kill us. And Joseph said, all the things that have gone on throughout my life, you meant it for evil, but God. But God meant it for good. God was trying to get God was going to get glory out of this situation. God used every God ordered every single thing through that historical event that I went through because it was a part of his story to get himself glory. Over and over again. Exodus chapter 14, we see God leads his people out of Egypt. The heart of Pharaoh is hardened and he chases the Israelites with 600 chariots. So they run and God, God leads them, the children of Israel, to a dead end. God purposely leads the children of Israel to a dead end. Why? It's between Pharaoh and the sea. And they even asked, what are you doing? Why would God do this? Because God had. A plan in his story. Exodus 14.11 says, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert? What have you done by bringing us to this place? Moses didn't know what to answer, but God did. God said in verse 4, I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and his army. And the Egyptians will what? They will know that I am the Lord. I'm setting up history so that all peoples will know that he is God and that he will get glory. Only God could get glory in this this impossible situation. God knew he was going to split that sea in half. God knew the people were going to be amazed when they saw the water crashing down on their oppressors. And God knew the result would be he would get the glory. He was ordering this moment in history for his glory. God follows through with his plan. God saves his people by grace. And all throughout the Old Testament, people are constantly looking back at that moment when God saved them. And in the process, they are glorifying God. They saw his glory. And they also saw the great nation of Egypt bow before the God of the universe. Joshua and the walls of Jericho, one of the cities in the promised land that was to be taken. Joshua could have came up with a hundred different military strategies. Go over the wall, go under the wall, go through the wall, wait, starve them out. Instead, God says, I have a plan. I want you to get all the trumpet players together, get the band together. And I want you to march around the city. Seven days and on the seventh day, march around the city and, and let your trumpet players shout and the walls will come down. How impossible is that? This is God's plan. Not attack them. Play a song. And in the process, no one is going to stand around and say, Wow, I really loved you the way you hit that high note on the trumpet. 
Instead, they are going to point to the only one who is capable of making such an impossible thing happen. God. The walls come tumbling down. Over and over again, we see Judges. Chapter 6, God calls a man named Gideon. The most unlikely warrior to go to battle. And he starts out with an army of 32,000 to go against an army of the Midianites of hundreds of thousands. And God breaks down that army of 32,000 Midian or, or Gideon army people to a number of 300. Every time that they would count their numbers, God would say, the number's too big. The number's too big. And Gideon would continue to say, we, we don't have enough as it is. And God breaks down the thousands to hundreds. And in the process, gets the victory for his glory. First Kings 18, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, basically say, let's see who's God. The prophets of Baal call out. And Elijah is saying, scream louder. Maybe your God is taking a nap. Maybe your God is in the restroom. Maybe your God is busy. Maybe your God is traveling. As they are calling out to see whose God is going to respond. Finally, it was Elijah's turn to call out. He says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let today, let it be known today that you are the God of Israel and that I am your servant. And all of these things at your command, answer me, O Lord, so the people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And fire falls from heaven. And you know what the prophets respond? Those, those false prophets of Baal, they say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They don't point to Elijah and say, Elijah, you're great. Instead, they point to the Lord and say, the Lord, he is God. God gets the glory in this process. The grace of God is displayed for the glory of God. They were going to chop him up. Instead, God pours down fire from heaven. Last one, Daniel chapter 3. Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. Why didn't God let Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego burn in that fiery furnace? Because he was going to gain glory in that process. When they were brought out of the fire, Nebuchadnezzar says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. Listen, a pagan king gives glory to God. That's the point. God gets the glory. Daniel and the lion's den. Same thing. Although this time it's a different king. King Darius praises God. On and on throughout the Bible. God gets the glory among the nations. Psalm 23 says, He guides me in the path of righteousness for His name's sake. Why does He guide you? Because it's about Him, not so much about you. Isaiah 48, 9 says, For his own name's sake, I will, I will delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I will hold it back from you so that you will not be cut off. 11 says, For my own sake, for my own sake, twice I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. All glory is for himself and no one else. Psalm 67, 1 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us so that your ways will be known among the earth and your salvation belongs to all the nations. This is a picture of God blessing you for His glory and all the nations looking and saying, 
This person serves a mighty God. Exodus 36, 22 says, It was not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for my own sake and for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned. I'll go on. He says, The nations will know that I am the Lord when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. This is all about God getting the glory, not about man's happiness. But in the process of God gaining glory, man is the benefactor. Man becomes happy. This is not in just the Old Testament. Listen to this. Jesus came for his glory. Jesus chose his disciples for his glory. Jesus performed miracles for his glory. Jesus spoke his word for his glory. Jesus was betrayed for his glory. Jesus was falsely accused for his glory. Jesus was crucified for his glory. Jesus was resurrected for his glory. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father for his glory. This continues to the disciples, to the early church fathers, to the dark ages, to the reformation, to the great awakening, to the awakening that's taking place in your own hearts. All of these things are happening for the glory of God so that when it is all complete, Revelation 7, 9 says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a multitude that no one could count. From every tribe, nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne to the Lamb of God or to the land to the Lamb. From the moment that God said, let there be light to this moment in Revelation 7, 9. All of history is pointing and leading to that moment. For the glory of God. This is where we are leading. Where we will all be bowed before the throne of God. You ask people to sum up the Christian message. And what do they say? God loves me and God died for my sins. And if that's what you would say, then you're not getting the whole picture. If God did all this just because he loves me, then who's the focal point of this message? Me. It's about me. Church is about me. The messages need to be more about me. My dreams are about me. My desires are about me. How I spend my time is all about me. Biblical Christianity is, is God is passionate about his glory. And because he is passionate about his glory, he has freely chosen to save a people for his own good pleasure. And because of that, we will be happy. Now, who's the focal point of that message? God. This is at the heart of Reformed theology. I am not the center of God's universe. Everything centers on God and his glory, not me and my pleasure. Everything in the universe happens for one ultimate purpose, to make manifest the glory of God. The reformers understood this in a way that we all too often miss. To believe in soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory, carries carries the idea with it that all we do as believers ought to serve the ultimate purpose of showing forth the glory of God. It is also a pressing truth that is pressed in our face that all that has happened and all that will ever happen is for the glory of God. 
This is God's stage. This is God's universe. And it is to show forth His glory. But I want to point something out in this great story that we just talked about. He's not just glorified in the redemption of sinners like you and I. But he's also glorified in the damnation of sinners who have turned from God. Let me say that again. He's not just glorified in the redemption of sinners like you and me, but he's also glorified in the damnation of sinners who have turned away from him. Paul says, Romans 9, 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for his glory. Paul says, Paul says, God shows forth his wrath so that he can show forth his mercy. But not only that, hell is not merely a backdrop against which God can display his mercy. He says, and in that passage, God is glorified in showing forth his wrath and in showing forth his mercy. They are equally glorifying God. This is not just a story of how God creates the heavens and the earth. It's not just a story of how God creates man and then redeems a stubborn, rebellious people. We are missing that he also brings judgment against the stubborn and rebellious people who have turned away from him. And he does both for his glory. R.C. Sproul Jr. says, There are those who glorify God by being the objects of his wrath. And those who will glorify God by being the objects of his tender mercy. God's pursuit of his glory was not finished when he rested on the seventh day. Creation was not the end. It was the beginning. In the same way, Jesus was not finished when he entered the world and redeemed sinful man. And yes, he is presently at the right hand of the father. And there is nothing more to the story but the glory of God. But there is also the glorious return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he will come and finally establish his kingdom and conquer that great old serpent once and for all. If we want one thing, if we walk out of here knowing one thing, the one thing we need to walk out of here knowing is that God is passionate for his glory. And that all things are ordered for the sake of his glory. We are the end. He is the means. He has done this great act of saving, of giving grace, of displaying glory, because he's great. And it happened not of or for ourselves, but because of him. One day in the heavens, the new heavens and the new earth, we will exist for the same purpose that we exist now. To show forth the glory of God. And that will be a glorious day that we will celebrate forever to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you for mercy. We thank you, Lord, for your glory. I pray that this was straightforward and clear. And that also your people would live their lives in a way that glorifies you to the max, Lord. 
We thank you for this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.